Section 8 of The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Floyd Wilde. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion, by Ford Maddox Ford. Part 2, Section 2. Let me think where we were. Oh, yes. That conversation took place on the 4th of August, 1913. I remember saying to her that, on that day exactly nine years before, I had made their acquaintance, so that it had seemed quite appropriate and like a birthday speech to utter my little testimonial to my friend Edward. I could quite confidently say that, though we four had been about together in all sorts of places, for all that length of time I had not for my part, one single complaint to make of either of them. And I added that that was an unusual record for people who had been so much together. You are not to imagine that it was only at Naheim that we met. That would not have suited Florence. I find, on looking at my diaries, that on the 4th of September, 1904, Edward accompanied Florence and myself to Paris, where we put him up till the 21st of that month. He made another short visit to us in December of that year, the first year of our acquaintance. It must have been during this visit that he knocked Mr. Jimmy's teeth down his throat. I dare say Florence had asked him to come over for that purpose. In 1905, he was in Paris three times, once with Leonora, who wanted some frocks. In 1906, we spent the best part of six weeks together at Mentone and Edward stayed with us in Paris on his way back to London. That was how it went. The fact was that in Florence, the poor wretch had got hold of a tartar, compared with whom Leonora was a sucking kid. He must have had a hell of a time. Leonora wanted to keep him for, what shall I say, for the good of her church, as it were, to show that Catholic women do not lose their men. Let it go at that for the moment. I will write more about her motives later, perhaps. But Florence was sticking on to the proprietor of the home of her ancestors. No doubt he was also a very passionate lover. But I am convinced that he was sick of Florence within three years of even interrupted companionship and the life that she led him. If ever Leonora so much as mentioned in a letter that they had had a woman staying with them, or if she so much as mentioned a woman's name in a letter to me, off would go a desperate cable and cipher to that poor wretch at Branshaw, commanding him on pain of an instant and horrible disclosure to come over and assure her of his fidelity. I dare say he would have faced it out. I dare say he would have thrown over Florence and taken the risk of exposure. But there he had Leonora to deal with, and Leonora assured him that, if the minutest fragment of the real situation ever got through to my senses, she would wreak upon him the most terrible vengeance that she could think of, and he did not have a very easy job. Florence called for more and more attentions from him as the time went on. She would make him kiss her at any moment of the day, and it was only by his making it plain that a divorced lady could never assume position in the county of Hampshire that he could prevent her from making a bolt of it with him in her train. Oh, yes, it was a difficult job for him. For Florence, if you please, gaining in time a more composed view of nature, 
and overcome by her habits of garrulity, arrived at a frame of mind in which she found it almost necessary to tell me all about it. Nothing less than that. She said that her situation was too unbearable with regard to me. She proposed to tell me all, secure a divorce from me, and go with Edward and settle in California. I do not suppose that she was really serious in this. It would have meant the extinction of all hopes of Branshaw Manor for her. Besides, she had got it into her head that Leonora, who was as sound as a roach, was consumptive. She was always begging Leonora before me to go and see a doctor. But, nonetheless, poor Edward seems to have believed in her determination to carry him off. He would not have gone. He cared for his wife too much. But if Florence had put him at it, that would have meant my getting to know of it, and his incurring Leonora's vengeance, and she could have made it pretty hot for him in ten or a dozen different ways and she assured me that she would have used every one of them. She was determined to spare my feelings, and she was quite aware that, at that date, the hottest she could have made it for him would have been to refuse herself ever to see him again. Well, I think I had made it pretty clear. Let me come to the 4th of August, 1913, the last day of my absolute ignorance, and, I assure you, of my perfect happiness. For the coming of that Dear girl only added to it all. On that 4th of August I was sitting in the lounge with a rather odious Englishman called Bagshaw, who had arrived that night too late for dinner. Leonora had just come to bed and I was waiting for Florence and Edward and the girl to come back from a concert at the casino. They had not gone there altogether. Florence, I remember, had said at first that she would remain with Leonora and me, and Edward and the girl had gone off alone. And then Leonora had said to Florence with perfect calmness, I wish you would go with those two. I think the girl ought to have the appearance of being chaperoned with Edward in these places. I think the time has come. So Florence, with her light step, had slipped out after them. She was all in black for some cousin or other. Americans are particular in those matters. We had gone on sitting in the lounge till towards ten, when Leonora had gone up to bed. It had been a very hot day, but there it was cool. The man called Bagshaw had been reading the Times on the other side of the room, but then he moved over to me with some trifling question as a prelude to suggesting an acquaintance. I fancy he asked me something about the poll tax on cur guests, and whether it could not be sneaked out of. He was that sort of person. Well, he was an unmistakable man, with a military figure, rather exaggerated with bulbous eyes that avoided your own, and a pallid complexion that suggested vices practiced in secret along with an uneasy desire for making acquaintance at whatever cost, the filthy toad. He began by telling me that he came from Ludlow Manor, near Ledbury. The name had a slightly familiar sound, though I could not fix it in my mind. Then he began to talk about a duty on hops, about Californian hops, about Los Angeles, where he had been, he fencing for a topic with which he might gain my affection. And then, quite suddenly, in the bright light of the street, I saw Florence running. It was like that. I saw Florence running with a face whiter than paper, and her hand on the black stuff over her heart. I tell you, my own heart stood still. I tell you, I could not move. She rushed in at the swing doors. 
She looked round at that place of rush chairs, cane tables and newspapers. She saw me and opened her lips. She saw the man who was talking to me. She stuck her hands over her face as if she wished to push her eyes out. And she was not there any more. I could not move. I could not stir a finger. And then the man said, By Jove, Flory Hurlbird. He turned upon me with an oily and uneasy sound meant for a laugh. He was really going to ingratiate himself with me. Do you know who that is? he asked. The last time I saw that girl, she was coming out of the bedroom of a young man called Jimmy at five o'clock in the morning, in my house at Ledbury. You saw her recognize me. He was standing on his feet, looking down at me. I don't know what I looked like. At any rate, he gave a sort of gurgle and then stuttered. Oh, I say, those were the last words I ever heard of Mr. Bagshaw's. A long time afterwards, I pulled myself out of the lounge and went up to Florence's room. She had not locked the door for the first time of our married life. She was lying quite respectably arranged, unlike Miss Maiden, on her bed. She had a little phial that rightly should have contained nitrate of amyl in her right hand. That was on the 4th of August, 1913. End of Part 2, Section 2